Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Glenn DeVries, the co-founder and co-CEO of Metadata, a company which has provided data management services for clinical trials for some 20 years. He's here today with the patient equation, the precision medicine revolution in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. Then it's autism. Can we diagnose it earlier? The average age of diagnosis is four years old, but a blood test may reveal autism spectrum disorder as early as 18 months. I'll speak with Beth Donnelly, the CEO of Stemina Biomarker Discovery. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Edward Tufte, who is best known for his work in data visualization. I asked him, who or what is a cherry picker? I think we're all cherry pickers because once we have an idea, uh, all history will back us up because we, with the confirmation bias, we select things, we cherry pick. I think uh, almost all scholars are particularly in the social sciences, tend to be cherry pickers uh, because uh, uh, they know the truth to some extent and they uh, find evidence, they cherry pick the evidence. And this is an enormous problem for the consumers of information to identify whether what they're looking at has been cherry picked. And so if the presenter uh, fails to allow access to their underlying data, guarantee that's a cherry picker because they're afraid that somebody would look at the underlying data and find out how they looted it. <laughs> and they'll give you all kinds of excuses for why you can't have their data. It would uh, violate attorney-client privilege. It's trademarked. It's copyrighted. It would violate the HIPAA law, health privacy. And the real jerks will say, buddy, if I were to tell you this, I'd have to kill you. And if somebody says that, you should stand up and say, mother, you're a cherry picker. <laughs> So it's failure to provide sources. Another way to identify a, a cherry picker is if they fly very high high over the area. And it's in a kind of jargon, high-level flight. And so they talk about growth hacking, the analytics, and that similar kinds of, of stuff. And the way to, as a presenter, to convince yourself that you know, you're not a cherry picker and you're not just cherry picking the current jargon is by occasionally drilling down and showing that you have some hands-on experience. And so cherry pickers don't want to do that, or they often won't. And so that's another way is they have, they have a mastery of one level of kind of jargon and uh, cherry picking. The final way is kind of intuitive, but I think it's a very good one. If a presentation, if a technical report is just too good to be true, you're probably right. It's too good to be true. This is particularly the case in social science, which is very, very difficult. Social science is not rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. Real scientists have this wonderful golden guarantee that everything that they see and measure and think about is a product of the universal laws of nature, which apply to every particle in the universe forever. Human behavior, we're just these little bugs on this little planet. 
and it's very difficult to we can't do experiments on many on many human situations and so social science is really hard compared to the natural sciences where there's a truth guarantee, the laws of nature. And that's a big difference. And it's, and also people are doing studies about people. You know, flawed studying the flawed. Oh, good. In a, in a way, yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you write about uh, cherry picking in Beautiful Evidence, uh, and the chapter title wins the prize. It's called Corruption in Evidence Presentations, Effects Without Causes, Cherry Picking, Overreaching, Chart Junk, and the Rage to Conclude. That's a line from Flaubert. It's in his letters. And my mother's research assistant translated it from the French. All humanity is besieged by the rage to conclude, and everyone everywhere thinks they know about the truth and about the mighty powers and everything. And on the contrary, he says, the greatest geniuses have never concluded. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Edward Tufte. His many books on data visualization include Visual Explanations. A professor emeritus of political science, statistics, and computer science at Yale University, he today travels around the country giving his signature one-day seminar, Presenting Data and Information, which could have the alternate title, Don't Be a Cherry Picker. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how patients can be their own best friends. I speak with Glenn DeVries, the co-founder and co-CEO of Metadata, providing data collection, management, and analytics for clinical trials. He's here today with the patient equation, the precision medicine revolution in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. Then it's autism and it's diagnosis the NeuroPoint DX blood test from Stamina Biomarker Discovery may reveal autism spectrum disorder as early as 18 months. The current average, four years. And now, Glenn DeVries. Well, Glenn, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you write in your book that we are at the intersection of biological and technological revolution. What do you mean by that? So um, there are things that are happening now in medicine, and I mean this from a molecular medical perspective, that when I was starting my career, this is a quarter century ago, would have been science fiction, the ways that we're training the body to fight disease and the the kinds of, of interventions that we can do inside cells and with individual genes. That was beyond rocket science back then. Meanwhile, also a quarter century ago, nobody was videoing with anybody over the internet. In fact, nobody had smartphones. You know, we were all sharing computers if we were lucky. And and so the world has changed so much in terms of the fabric of, of technology that connects all of us. 
And at the same time as all that stuff, again, the, the, the science fiction turns science and biology, that just creates, I think, an extraordinary opportunity um, for the world to advance at, at rates we just couldn't think of from a, a healthcare perspective. Well, I just think 20 years ago, you and Tarek Sharif founded Metadata to collect and manage data records for FDA clinical trials. And guess what? That hasn't changed. Not you. <laughs> the right. FDA trials haven't changed. 20 years ago, trying to, to do that and bring the, the FDA clinical trials into the information world, what did that look like? How different was it? So, so it, was, it was really something that was, um, for me, born out of frustration. You know, it, so we talk about how we can make these bits and bytes zoom around the world using connected phones and, and the Internet. Um, back then, you, you know the, the phrase sneaker net, like when you, you move something physically? <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually used sneaker net to get patient data. I, I was doing experiments at my lab bench. And I had the data from those experiments, and this was a, a data that was um, related to patients and their cancer progression. I had the data in a shared PC at the back of the lab. And to get some of the other data about the patients that was required for the analyses I was doing, I had to, in my sneakers, take an elevator, cross a street, take another elevator, log onto a computer, write data down on a piece of paper, walk the whole way back, and now re-enter it into the computer in my lab. And that sounds almost ridiculous now, um, but actually that was exactly how not just my research was working, but that's how all clinical trials worked. People were copying data with pens from one place to another, and people were retyping it and sending it if you were really lucky on a disk, but probably on a piece of, of multi-part paper. And, uh, I bet a lot of uh, listeners don't even remember these. You would write on the sheet and it looked like one piece of paper and then you could separate into four or five. One of which was the color goldenrod. Oh, nice. That... Whoever heard of that again? <laughs> yeah, Dump that color. That disappeared. <laughs> um, but, but so this just seemed like a, a huge burden in terms of getting what we were doing from a research perspective to the point that it could actually help patients. And so um, back then... Here, you know, we keep saying things like 20 years, and I said a quarter century. Here's a way to really date this um, conversation. Uh, we thought if you can buy a book on Amazon, why can't we do clinical research on Am uh, the way we do things on Amazon and, and do it online? The only thing you could buy on Amazon back then was a book. It was ancient history, right? And it was really that idea and just saying, can we get out of our way from an infrastructure perspective and get these innovations into the clinic, two patients, that was the origin of Medidata. If we go forward 20 years, a number of things have happened in information technology, some of which you've mentioned, but also what's happened is the ability to decode DNA. We were not able to do that 20 years ago. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is, one is decoding. Even if you can read it, does it make any sense to you? And can you actually do something differently based on what you read? And, and I really think that's kind of the, the secret to how we need to think about healthcare and medicine is it's not just enough to have the data. It's just not enough to know the, the series of AGs, Cs, and Ts that makes up our genetic code. We need to know wh which of those genes, which of those individual um, base pairs actually makes a difference in terms of what my disease might be like or what I might develop or what medicine is right for me or wrong for me. And frankly, the problem of decoding that from our DNA isn't, 
I think, intellectually that much different than figuring it out from our blood pressure or from the way we move around all day. And, and I personally believe that the, the summation of all of that information is the secret to, again, I'll use the word decoding what is best for us. I, I use the, the analogy of the Rosetta Stone a lot. So you know, the Rosetta Stone has the same story written in three different languages. And the fact that it's written, repeated three different ways was the key for people to understand how to break the code, how to decrypt all of the hieroglyphics in, that were written in ancient Egypt. So you need to look at your, the genes, you need to look at the blood chemistry, you need to look at the sleep quality, you need to look at the tumor volumes, whatever it is, all in one stack, like the Rosetta Stone, and then you really start to be able to decode. And, and that decoding is what is the, the thing that's going to lead to a better therapy. Well, in this last 20 years, metadata has, has provided services to uh, tens of thousands of clinical trials, millions of patients, and billions of data records. I have a funny question about that. Each of those clinical trials... How much crossover is there? How much information has been able to uh, be gleaned from their crossing over? Yeah, so it's actually, it's a great question because in some ways we, um, we haven't come that far in life sciences. And actually in some ways, I think we are, we are now this rocket ship on the information superhighway that's about to take us to new places. So you have a new great therapy, right? You've invented something and it's going to cure X. Terrific. But you need to prove that, right? And whether you're a life scientist or you took high school chemistry, everybody knows how you prove something in science. You have the experiment and you, you do something in a new way. You give somebody the new drug and you have a control, right? And in, if you're giving some people the new drug, you give some people a sugar pill or the standard of care and you then compare the two, right? Um, every good scientist thinks about the, the null hypothesis. Assume, even if you think it's the best drug in the world, right, you assume it doesn't work and you create an experiment that proves that you're wrong. That Actually, it's like a double negative. It proves that it does work. And so in, in these tens of thousands of clinical trials, yes, we are largely doing things that we were doing 20 years ago. And frankly, we're largely doing things that we were doing you know, hundreds of years ago in the world of medicine where we would have the new drug or the new therapy and the control. But because all of these trials are now connected technologically, we're starting to realize that let's say we have great new drug A and great new drug B and great new drug C. We think all of them might be interesting in one particular disease. We don't need to have a control group for A and a control group for B and a control group for C, we might be able to share the patients who are getting the sugar pill or the standard of care in a way that, that if you permit me to do a little math here, right? If we have 100 patients per group, per trial, in four trials, that would be 100 on each of the new drugs and 400 patients who would get the standard of care or the sugar pill. So you had a 50-50 chance of a patient going into any one of those four trials that you would get something that is not this new potentially great therapy. 
A sugar pill is a sugar pill. So if you're just taking all their measurements, you don't know which of the trials they're in, but they're actually good for all of them. Right. So, well, so now if we combine all that into what's really one kind of meta experiment, one big experiment, because we can connect it through technology, we can connect the data where people like me would have been running around in our sneakers, you know, with separate databases, but now it's all on one platform. This is what we do at Medidata. We can now say, all right, well, we're going to have for every four patients who are getting a particular drug, we're just going to have one control. So now I have a four out of five chance as a patient to get one of these great new drugs or potentially great new drugs. And actually, because we're not just comparing each drug to a control, each drug to a sugar pill, we actually can start to compare drugs A, B, C, and D at the same time and say, well, which one is best for any given patient? Is somebody like Glenn better served by drug B than drug A? And, and really, this is getting down to kind of the exciting ideas in precision medicine. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Glenn DeVries, co-founder and co-CEO of Metadata, which provides complete data collection, management, and analytics for clinical trials. All that data in the cloud. He's here today with the patient equation, the precision medicine revolution in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. Now, okay, Glenn, what is precision medicine? Right, so you mentioned this idea, well, it's the name of my book, The Patient Equation. Well, precision medicine is giving the best therapy to any given patient at the right time. And the reason that my book is called The Patient Equation is because the fact of the matter is, if we're going to make a decision like that, there is a mathematical equation that can help lead us to the best answer. And uh, we were talking about kind of the, the technology revolution, but also the, the biological technology that's out there now. And the therapies that we have are, are getting so much more sophisticated. That's great. But actually, if you look at um, a very sophisticated therapy that's going to work for a certain group of patients at a certain time, that actually means that the number of patients who might be well served for it is pretty small. We have to figure out who those patients are. And in medicine, we used to think about pretty simple equations. The, the example I love to use is a statin. And you know, a cardiologist listening is going to say, wow, Glenn has completely oversimplified this. So I apologize in advance. But you know, somebody has high cholesterol, yes, no. Those are the inputs of the equation. And if yes, give them a statin. That's the output of the equation. Right? But if the inputs get sophisticated to the point of, well, um, for Glenn's cancer, who are the patients who benefited from a very specific molecular therapy? Did they have different genes? Were they born with certain genes or not? Did their cancers have certain mutations in, in individual genes or not? Was the amount of, of tumor burden, the amount of tumor in, in, in the bodies of patients like Glenn, similar to Glenn? And there's all this whole kind of stack, that Rosetta Stone of different pieces of information. And we look to see, is this particular medicine good for Glenn or not? Well, well, I took what was one input, one term in an equation, if you remember your, your algebra, right? And now I've turned it into something where maybe there's 10 terms, maybe there's 100 terms of these inputs, and the output is what is the best possible medicine for me? So the patient equation is the math behind precision medicine. How much does the patient have to do to make that work? We've had generations of people going to the doctor and say, doctor, just tell me. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. If you're going to make that work, the patient has to do something. 
Yeah. So, so the patient, I think, well, in two levels, there is no, I think, artificial intelligence. There's no automatic math um, that's going to get you to the point that you know exactly the right medicine to give to a certain person because there's elements of emotion. There's, there's life decisions that need to go into how you um, are going to be best treated. So I'm not one of these people who thinks that, that the doctor-patient relationship goes away because of, intelligence, uh, because of uh, artificial intelligence or things like that. But there's another element, which is about the patient, which is that if you go back to this kind of stack that begins with our most basic genetic information and is built up into what's happening in our cells and our organs, um, we think of, if you get in high school biology, genotype and phenotype, right? Your genotype is your genes and your phenotype is your body. Well, yes, but your body is very much inclusive of what's happening in your brain, your cognition. And it's very much inclusive of how you wind up behaving based on that cognition and your physical capabilities. The way you move around, the way you think is as much your phenotype as is the amount of sodium in your bloodstream. And we're actually all, unfortunately, because of COVID-19, even starting to realize outside of medicine that actually where I move around to also matters from a medical perspective. You hear about contact tracing. You worry about quarantining when somebody's coming from a particular geography because there's a pandemic. All of this stuff is the inputs potentially to one of these equations for what the best medicine is. And the inputs have changed dramatically now that we have smart watches and all of what our phones can do and all the access we have to data and, and to store data out in the cloud, making it accessible. This is enormous about how much data can be there. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you know, just a, a little uh, metadata story, actually. You know, so we started this company to connect people in clinical trials, and we connected all the doctors and nurses and professionals because we assumed that they would have access to the Internet. Again, 20 years ago, some people thought we were crazy. They'd be like, well, what happens if the, if the doctor's computer breaks? And we, we would say, well, they're going to get their computer fixed because they want to check their America Online email for those who remember America Online. <laughs> yes. Now, the idea of not having a computer in an office is almost ridiculous. Well, the a same number thing, of computers in the office. If this one right. has a problem, you go to the next one. Yeah. And you also probably have at least one somewhere on your body. And that's what really changed our thinking around patients. Uh, I can tell you this. I was sitting watching um, Steve Jobs. I was in the room. At, Steve Jobs was obviously still alive at the time at an Apple developer conference where they were introducing the first software development kit, the first way to write apps for the iPhone. The iPhone was just a couple years old. So none of what we do and think about today existed. Again, this is just over a decade ago. And Steve Jobs starts talking about how many iPhones Apple sold. And he was talking about it to get all the software developers in the room excited to write software for phones so they could sell it to lots of people. Well, I'm sitting there in the room thinking, hold on a second. They're selling all these phones. This means all these phones are going to be in people's pockets. This means the same kind of assumption that we would have made about doctors and nurses having access to a computer. This means that patients are going to have access to the Internet. Like we call it mobile now. We call them smartphones. We didn't have those names back then. But the, the fabric that connects the world will be that much more pervasive to all people. And I think that's really one of the exciting trends. Like I said before, we, we still do the same stuff in clinical trials. We still measure stuff. We still compare things to controls. But now we can do that directly with patients just as easily, sometimes more easily than we would do it 
connected to a physician. And that means the kind of evidence that we're getting is probably not just better, but might even be more relevant to the patients themselves because it's related to their day-to-day activities, not the view that a physician might have of them one day in their doctor's office. Now, you tell a lot of stories in the book about various patients and how they make their patient, their personal patient equation, <laughs> they contribute and connect. And so let's let's pick out one. One thing I like to pick out are people with chronic conditions, uh, such as diabetes or asthma or others that you've listed. Do you want to pick one of those and talk about how they can proactively, you know, be a part of this patient equation? The uh, the book starts um, with, uh, with the story of a, a guy, Jack Whalen, who sadly passed away, but um, uh, he really inspired me. Um, uh, I met him professionally and we got friendly. He actually uh, would come and speak to engineers uh, at Medidata because he, I, I think, kept himself alive with Microsoft Excel. Uh, that may sound ridiculous, but if you look at a clinical trial, and obviously I work on lots of them, you, know, you kind of look at the progression of a patient from the day that you start the experiment, that's what it is, to you know the end of the experiment for that particular patient. Did we help that patient get better? Yes or no? Hopefully yes. Well, that's not the rest of the patient's life, right? What I was just saying, we, we, we're living creatures. We're not static. And it, the clinical trial might have worked great for Jack um, for a couple of years. That's a true story. Um, but then his cancer, like many cancers, was able to figure out how to kind of evade the therapy that he was on. And he would go on a different clinical trial where he would get given a drug that was approved for a different cancer, but his doctor and he decided to try it for the cancer that he had. And Jack was the first person I, I know who had an Excel spreadsheet and he plotted patient equation style mathematically the progression of his disease across all of the different treatments that he had. And he could actually see when he was getting better or worse with different experimental drugs and drugs that were on the market. And he took charge of his healthcare. And he really was on top of it all because of the way he thought about data and engineering. Now, Jack was a super smart guy and really, I think, was taking great care of himself. But he had a vision for how this could work that now I think we can make a reality for almost everybody. Um, of course, the patient has to be motivated. Of course, we have to take care of our own health care. But we don't have to be mathematical savants and know how to use Microsoft Excel. We can take the drugs that we're getting. We can take the, the way we're being treated um, from a medical perspective and start to have things on our phones, in our pockets, that are, in some cases, automatically making these plots for us, helping us make these decisions, giving us a view of our health and our health care that we wouldn't have had when everything was in charts separated by walls and cabinets and miles and miles between hospitals. Everything being in the cloud, as you said before, making it accessible in our pockets from anywhere matters in terms of managing our healthcare. And the idea of Excel, so many people use that for all kinds of things. You don't think about using it for your healthcare, but what you can do are track things that are important to you. Does your knee hurt when you do this or don't do this and it stopped hurting here or whatever parameters you want to put in your life that are a part of what you think is your quality of life. This is a tremendous change in our attitudes towards ourselves. Yeah, I would actually take that even a step further. I think the the establishment, quote unquote, in terms of thinking about things that are probably more physiological, but what you do care about is hanging out with your family and friends, going to work, um, going on vacation, 
there's probably information that the patient cares about in terms of how they're able to achieve those goals that actually feeds into the patient equation that will help the medical establishment make even better decisions. I've been speaking with Glenn DeVries, the co-CEO of Metadata and the author of The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, diagnosing autism early, as early as 18 months, with a blood test, I'll speak with Beth Donnelly, the CEO of Stemina Biomarker Discovery, about their test, Neuropoint DX. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Glenn DeVries, the co-CEO of Metadata and the author of The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. Well, you talk about everybody. I got to tell you, even the health insurance people don't get off the hook here. (laughs) But one of the areas I want you to talk about is value-based care. What does that mean and how is it different from today? Yeah, so so it, it's going to be, I, I hope, a really interesting transformation, right? Um, today, basically, people in healthcare get paid for doing work, um, and that that seems intuitive. Um, but you know, you could take a patient and you could give them, let's talk about precision medicine again, the exact right medicine for them at the right time, and they're cured, or they they at least get better. Um, their disease is managed, if that's the case. Um, or you could not give them the best medicine. And maybe it's not even the, your fault. It's just that that medicine didn't work. Um, but the patient isn't cured or the patient doesn't get better. In value-based care, in that second scenario, you don't get paid. You get paid when things work. And what's nice about that is it creates an incentive system where everybody who is involved in healthcare 
whether it's the insurance company, whether it's the patient, whether it's an employer, whether it's a physician, everybody's incentives get aligned. Everybody wants to be more productive. The, the country that you live in wants you to be a productive citizen that is going to work and contributing to GDP and consuming things, right? And you want to be walking around and hanging out with, like I said, friends and family. And now everybody who is taking care of you medically, everybody who's creating new tools for healthcare, all wants to figure out how well we can help you realize those goals, how productive we can make you in society, because that's when they get paid. That's all value-based care is. The question then is, how do you implement that and, and how do you um, create an environment where you can actually measure how well people are doing? Well, that's why it's a part of this um, story of the patient equation is because of what you were just saying. We need to measure not just what's happening in people's cells. We need to measure what their quality of life is, how productive they are. Um, those are the inputs to the, what really, I think, constitutes value to a patient. Now, everybody is seeing all of these medical devices, but you make the point, it's not just the devices, it's the, it's the equations behind it. What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so so um, actually the, the continuous glucose monitor is a great example of it, right? The, the, the medicine in that case is, is insulin and the amount of insulin that is correct for you as a diabetic right now is based on your current blood glucose. So the input, the glucose, is related to the output, how much insulin you get. Input, output, there, there's an algorithm in there. There is a mathematical equation that connects one to the other. And, and I expect, I'm actually really hopeful, that what we'll see is more things like that, where in COVID you can't go to the hospital, but maybe if there's a, a medical device that is delivering the drug in home, we can even take sophisticated infused therapies, things for advanced cancers, things for rare diseases, that will revolutionize the way we think about not just the medicines, but the delivery of those medicines. It was not that long ago that no one had access to all the trials that were going on. And now we realize, boy, there's a whole lot of data out there. Are we going to be able to get to the point where individuals can have access to trial data? Is, or is that not really relevant? No, I, I think it's hugely relevant. Um, uh, frankly, I, I think it's, if we think about it in trials, it's a little bit of kind of a proxy to access to healthcare. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an article um, in, in Nature Medicine, and I have no way to describe these the two maps in it other than kind of haunting. Um, it, it's a picture or two pictures, one with transport like a car and one walking of how far people are from a hospital. And can you get there in minutes or can you just take more than a day to get to a hospital? And you see these maps and there are a lot of people where it's more than a day. And that includes North America and the United States of America in ways that you, know, you just don't think about. When you look at a clinical trial, you see that it's largely affluent people who live in nice neighborhoods because that's where the academic medical centers are. And you see these biases in the populations that go into the trials that do not reflect the rest of the planet or the rest of the country. You need a representative sample of what you want to see the, the safety and efficacy of your drug like in the rest of the world. So how do you solve this? I think this problem of access can get solved with the digital technologies because we can help people find the trials that will benefit them from their computers, from their phones. We can connect to them 
remotely. We don't need them to make that journey away from their work, away from their families, if they even can make that journey to get to a clinic. And even some of the stuff that we were just talking about in terms of this combination of, of not just drugs, but drugs with devices and the drugs, devices and apps. This means we can, we can get these therapies to people where they can take them in their homes without having to be in the same room at the same time as a doctor or a nurse. So you know, will technology solve every problem we have in access to healthcare? No, but I think it can be a huge component to solving those issues moving forward. And we've always talked about who is your doctor and what can you get in terms of geography? Well, I live here, I live right next to this, or I live a far distance away. Or It's like, hey, once you get on the internet, it doesn't matter how far they are away. Cleveland is as close as uh, Sri Lanka. You know, it's like where where are, yeah. where yeah. are you? And and, and, and these these changes in, in technology, um, both biological and digital, mean that that actually not only can we interact online, but but maybe we can actually get the therapies working remotely the same way that an interaction would happen remotely. And that I think really puts us into an exciting new world of equality from a healthcare perspective that is scalable. Well, up until COVID hit, uh, we had pretty much accepted in the pharmaceutical area that it took 12 to 15 years to go from the lab bench to an approved product and roughly $2 billion and it could take longer with a vaccine. Boy, they're tricky. And then COVID did hit. And now we're looking at this acceleration of clinical trials. Uh, will this have a permanent effect, do you think, on clinical trials? I, I think it will. Um, you know, we're just talking about value-based care and aligning incentives and, and gets everybody to behave differently and better. Well, there, there sure is a great way. Well, I shouldn't say a great way, but there sure is a, a, a reliable way to get people incented to figure out how to get a vaccine into the market faster. And that is to have the entire planet potentially sick from it. Um, and I think what's happened is the world, not just the life sciences industry, not just regulators, but physicians, patients, all now are getting educated about this process of developing a therapeutic and making sure that it's safe and effective. You know, I, I spent the last 25 years trying to explain at dinner parties what I did in clinical research. I don't have to explain that anymore. Everybody understands it to your <laughs> yeah. point. Um, and and I, I, think, I, I think there's no going back. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I, I think that, that the world has realized through this common, unfortunate shared experience um, that regardless of what the source of medical misfortune is, there are better, faster ways to work. And frankly, a lot of people, um, and, and I'm not uh, highlighting things that, that Medidate has done or I've done, uh, that so many people that I've met at so many institutions and so many companies um, from the last 20 years whose ideas were regarded as kind of like, well, maybe that'll work, but that's kind of out there. Um, the risk reward, I don't know what the, you know, the risk seems high. Well, if the reward is that we can take those 12 or 15 years and turn it into two, if it's taking those billions of dollars and, and turning it into hundreds of millions or, or whatever the reduction is, I think people now are aligned in that we have to do those things. So we're seeing a healthy appetite to do things differently and better. And there is absolutely no reason why we should be dialing in that back once we're through the pandemic. If, if anything, I've been pointing out to people, I mentioned before, people aren't going for their chronic disease management. Um, it, it, 
I don't know anybody at this point who doesn't know at least one person who had to pause, for example, their cancer therapy because they couldn't go to a medical center during the pandemic. And even people who are totally healthy, you probably didn't go for your checkup. So the world's going to be on average, I think, sicker after the pandemic than when it started. You know, the human, the human population is a living, breathing thing, just like us as individuals. And we're not going to come out of the pandemic looking good because we didn't take care of ourselves as well, because we were busy dealing with this virus. Well, the, the need to get better medicines into the, into the hands of patients and, and the physicians who are prescribing them, that's something that has now been dialed up, not dialed down. And that's another reason why I am very optimistic about this kind of new world being here to stay. Well, Glenn, this has been terrific. We didn't get to so much in the book, and I, but I really appreciate you coming on, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today is Glenn DeVries, co-founder and co-CEO of Metadata and co-author with Jeremy Blockman of The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. It's published by John Wiley & Sons. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. From the outside, we often know autism through observation of behavior. But are there biological markers for autism? Despite an average diagnosis at four years old, Stemina Biomarker Discovery has developed a blood test for autism spectrum disorder for as young as 18 months. Beth Donnelly is its CEO. I want you to tell us, if you could, about autism. So much has happened over the years. People have forgotten about what this means to be on the autism spectrum, what this exactly means today. Well, I'll tell you, the prevalence of autism is the first issue. We now have one in 58 kids in the United States um, that have autism. Um, and that's a new statistic from the CDC. Previously, it was one in 69. So almost everyone knows someone or has someone in their family that has autism. Um, obviously, autism is a behavioral disorder, um, sometimes characterized by social issues, repetitive behavior, cognitive issues. We're actually looking at it from a biological perspective and trying to sort of peel back the onion and understand um, what is the biology that is autism? And there are multiple biologies that manifest then in the behaviors that we see. Well, we should say right away that you're the mother of someone who is on the autism spectrum and he's in college. Yes, he is. So the idea that th these are not functional people or we have to put them in some special class and not deal with them anymore, it's just not true. There is so much that can be done, but you have to have knowledge. That's true. And autism is a spectrum disorder. It's a spectrum disorder from a cognitive, behavioral, and um Bio biological perspective. Jack is pretty high functioning, but he's had a lot of intervention over the years. Um, lots of behavioral therapy, OTPT, speech language, you know, tutoring. Um, we've tried modified diets and dietary supplements and vitamins, attention deficit medicine, three kinds. Um, I think you're, really, you're a study in yourself. <laughs> we are. We are. Like many parents, you go to the internet and you read about these things and um, there isn't any precision around how they're applied. So parents try everything. Um, and that's what we're trying to bring um, at Stemina and Neuropoint is some precision about what's different about the biology of these kids and how do we order our thinking around how to intervene. Obviously, behavioral therapy every child should get. But how do we prioritize some of the other choices to address the biology? 
So there's a major study out there, 1,100 children. Mm -hmm. What have you studied and what have you available still to continue to study with? Um, So the Children's Autism Metabolome uh, Project, or CAMP, uh, took place at eight sites across the country, um, led by our head of our SAB, Dr. David Amaral, who's at the Mind Institute at UC Davis. We recruited 1,102 children, to be specific, um, children with autism, uh, typically developing children, and also children with developmental delay, but not autism. And we collected first-of-the-morning plasma. It's important to have a fasted sample when studying metabolism, as we do, because just like you don't eat a sweet roll, before you go get your glucose or cholesterol tested, we can measure that too. Um, This is an enormous resource that's allowed us to identify the first set of biomarkers that um, show a dysregulation in amino acid metabolism that may be addressable through a supplement. Um, It describes about 17% of the kids, and we published that in Biological Psychiatry uh, back in September of 2018. Uh, We have a second paper in progress, which we hope will be submitted by the end of the month, which looks at mitochondrial function and energy metabolism. And this is an area that's been known in the literature in smaller studies of 30 or 40 or even 100 children. This is an opportunity to look at it in 1,102 kids. And so we really get a chance to kind of dissect some of these hypotheses um, and bring forward some additional biology that could be addressable through specific treatments. If we know this, can this become a diagnostic? Do we know enough that it will be? Yeah, so that's a great question. We are going to start offering this as a, I would call it a prognostic. So it will screen for whether or not the child has a metabolism subtype that we've seen as highly associated with autism. And then they would be referred to a developmental specialist who would screen them using traditional behavioral assessment. That will be necessary for insurance coverage, for IEPs at school, for behavioral therapy, et cetera. But what we hope it will do, because our kids are 18 months to 48 months, is get that child referred uh, sooner. Right now, the average age of diagnosis is over four years. My son was seven, in fact, when he was diagnosed with pervasive developmental delays, not otherwise specified, PDD-NOS, which used to be a form of autism that's now been rolled up into the regular autism diagnosis as part of the DSM-5. And we didn't, we, we were not told it was autism, and we knew he had pervasive developmental delays. So a lot of time is lost, where if we can diagnose as young as 18 months with our test and get a child referred, they can get into behavioral therapy, and that can be critically important to the outcome. Um, in addition, the insights into the metabolism that we can give as I mentioned, will give opportunities to sort of prioritize all of those different interventions that parents try and take the most innocuous one first and see if you can make a difference. Uh, If you know very early on that, in fact, uh, let's say you know at two, age two, Mm -hmm. that uh, your son or daughter is on the autism spectrum, what kinds of things might you do Uh, Just even a simple example, uh, at that age, between then and the time, say they are seven, when you got your your diagnosis. Yeah. So first of all, behavioral therapy is really important for both enhancing communication, for dealing with outbursts of emotion, anger, um, repetitive behaviors. So all of that. Um, behavioral therapy can happen and happen right away. I know in our school district in Madison, Wisconsin, they have a birth to three program in the home five days a week where they come and actually give therapy to these children. My son actually entered the early childhood program at age three, and they do have an age three to 
kindergarten, which is age five in, in our district, um, where he received speech language, OTPT and, and the like. All of those things are building pathways in the brain as the brain is very plastic and undergoing an enormous amount of neurodevelopment. And so it's really important to get kids into all of that kind of intervention right at the very earliest age possible. It's been published uh, quite frequently that the outcome for kids, even lower functioning kids, is enormously better if they're intervened with earlier. Now, on the other hand, we may be able to do something about this. Mm -hmm. You were saying that some of the initial biomarkers might be treated with a supplement. Yeah, so the first paper that we published is on a branched-chain amino acid um, dysregulation. These kids have low levels of branched-chain amino acids and concomitantly higher levels of other amino acids. And this um, actually is supported by some um, biology that's been published in a family that has a rare genetic variant that causes them to have too much of the enzyme that breaks down the branched-chain amino acids. And when the branched chains are not available, the transporter systems um, take up the next available amino acid in line, resulting in this imbalance. And they've shown with these children with a high-protein branched-chain supplement um, using kind of heroic methods, 24-7 uh, NG tube, nasal gastric tube, to deliver this supplement, that they can ameliorate the symptoms of autism. And these kids also tend to have epilepsy. Um, it was also repeated in a rodent model that was created to um, mimic the same enzymatic difficulty that these children have. And again, the rodents responded to a high-protein branched-chain supplement. So we've actually created a formulation with a pediatric nutritional specialist at the University of Wisconsin named Dr. Denise Ney, who focuses on amino acid uh, nutrition for um, neurodevelopmental disorders like PKU. Um, and the hope is that we can take something that's very precisely designed to address this imbalance and treat the children and show that they improve. We actually have 92 kids from the camp study who have been identified with this subtype that we could call back and give this supplement to, very low risk, um, and see whether or not they improve. And we're trying to raise money to do that. Do you see that the supplement will be sort of a general here, you know, like in vitamins, here, take 100, 100 milligrams, you know, do you think it will be like, okay, make sure you're at some threshold level, or do you think it will need to be precise depending upon their profile of the biomarker? Yeah, I think it needs to be precise. These kids all share a pretty common um, dysregulation. So we think a single formulation will work, but we actually have it designed so that it's a powder because you need a certain um, dose of the um, supplement per the weight of the child. Um, we also have it set up so that we would have a regimen of three times a day and you could put it into a smoothie or a formula, baby bottle if, if necessary, if the child is young, um, and recommended to be taken with fatty foods so that it stays in the gut for better absorption. So all of these things are part of the design that Dr. Ney had put together to try to uh, make sure that it addresses the imbalance and also um, is the right uh, size for the, the child. Now, there's a series of biomarkers. You said mm -hmm. that, was, that was just the first, these were the first ones That's right. that you found. Mm -hmm. uh, are you looking for more? We are. So we have a publication in progress that's looking, as I said, at mitochondrial dysfunction and energy metabolism. Um, the literature reports that somewhere around 40% of children with autism have some sort of mitochondrial dysfunction or energy issue, um, often characterized by low muscle tone and other um, kind of hallmarks of, of that type of energy issue. Um, we're not certain yet what the solution to that might be. Um, we're just writing the publication right now. But we do see that about 40% of the kids in our study um, have some sort of dysregulation around energy metabolism and mitochondrial function. 
many times it is difficult to get support from insurance companies, schools, official uh, programs, uh, if either the condition isn't recognized and then it leads to the diagnosis isn't recognized or the solution isn't recognized. Where do you think you are in that emergent spectrum? So there are a couple of great questions. There. The first thing is getting people to think about autism as a biological condition as opposed to a behavioral one is is really kind of a step that needs to be taken because traditionally the people who diagnose it are, are behavioral specialists. So getting them to think about the biology is is a first leap in, a, in an education process. Um, we're getting there on that, I think. And people recognize that it is a spectrum disorder. Um, the way I like to put it sometimes is if you think about cancer, two generations ago, our grandparents might say, I have cancer. And they thought about it as one disease. And today, because of companies like Foundation Medicine, we know that even within a particular tissue type, a breast tumor, for example, um, there are many different types of cancer, and we need to address them based on that biology. So we're starting that education process, and that will be one that will include physicians and clinicians. Um, that's part of our goal for this year with our fundraising. Um, the other piece is reimbursement. So um, the diagnostics industry is the only industry where we actually sell a product and we um, hope we'll get paid. And the industry says about 60% of the time you'll get paid and the other 40% you'll have to write off. Um, we also know that um, sometimes collections are as long as 100, uh, 720 days, which is two years. So something needs to be done about the reimbursement system in our country. Um, it is really having a chilling effect on biotechnology and the ability to raise money because venture capital is concerned about you can have the best test in the world, but if you're not going to get paid for it, it isn't a business. So that's really important to address. And then lastly, I would say Autism Speaks has um, put an enormous amount of energy into getting legislation now, I think, in 48 states that says, including in Wisconsin, that insurance companies are mandated to pay for autism diagnosis and treatment. Yet when parents go to access that, there are no CPT codes to cover many of the things that are being done for these children, or they're not the standard of practice. And so we have some work to do to try to educate our whole healthcare system about how do we, you know, diagnose and treat these kids. Um, and we're starting to work on that as well, along with Autism Speaks. But there's a lot, uh, a lot to be lot done to here. To be done, yeah, yeah. These are, this, this is, this takes a lot of different pieces here to be recognized and and to be brought together. Um, your son diagnosed at seven years. We're looking to get diagnosis between 18 months and four years of age. Did you have any sense that things weren't on the fully normal range at 18 months or two years? Did you have any sense at all? You know, um, I have to say it was probably when he was about two that we started to be concerned. And even then, he had an older sister who was very verbal, and we all knew what he wanted. So he'd point or say one word, you know, and we'd kind of fill in the blanks. Um, it was actually when he was just about three that my mom said to me, you know, he's really not talking very much. Um, and so we had the school district, that's what our pediatrician recommended, come to our house and assess his development. And he took her, uh, the lady from the school down to the bottom of the stairs in the basement and he pointed at the door and he said only one word three times. He said, cut, cut, cut. And I knew immediately he was telling her the story of cutting the cat door into the basement um, door so that the cat could get in to use its pan. And she came up and she said, you know, he's really only talking in about an 18-month 
um, level, he only used one word three times. And when she said it, I realized that that was true. One cut, one cut, and one cut. But in my mind, I knew the whole story. So that's I right. think sometimes we're a little too close to our own kids. Um, and that's why we, we do have to rely on the expertise of educators and clinicians and physicians to help um, identify this sooner. Our own physician said, well, you know, he's a boy and Catherine is so verbal. Let's check him next year at his well baby checkup. And, you know, a year would be lost in between. So this is what we need is to have something where if the child isn't speaking as you would expect, you can screen and see whether they should be referred sooner so that time isn't lost. And it's also difficult sometimes for parents to accept that there's a problem. That's true. And I've met parents in that category who don't want their child to have a label. Um, we never fell in that category. We always felt like if he got extra help, he would catch up. Um, I wouldn't say that he's exactly caught up, but he's doing very, very well. Um, and he will graduate from college. Um, when he started college, we didn't know if we were making a mistake. It was really a struggle. But he's grown and stretched so much, and I, I would say that that is my... Um, tip to people is, you know, stretch your kids like you would stretch your typically developing kids. Let them do things that are scary and hard and, and risk failure, because I think sometimes we um, select out for them and they can do a lot more than we expect if they're put in an um, environment that they're challenged. Sometimes scary and hard for you. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Not them. <laughs> or both. Or both. So NeuroPoint DX, that is the diagnostic Yes, so NeuroPoint DX is the um, actually the division, our neurological disorders um, division of our company, which is Stemina Biomarker Discovery. The test is actually called the NPDX for NeuroPoint DX ASD test. Great. And is that available now? It is available now through our clinical sites um, that participated in the camp study. The blood has to be drawn and put on wet ice and into the minus 80 within an hour. Um, and so we're only using the sites that did that for the camp study um, at this time. After we raise our current fundraising round, we will be expanding our you know footprint of where it can be obtained, but currently just at the eight sites that were part of camp. Well, Beth, thank you so much for coming in, and I hope you come back. Keep us updated. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Beth Donnelly is the CEO of Stemina Biomarker Discovery. More information about its NeuroPoint DX Autism Spectrum Disorder Blood Test may be found at NeuroPointDX.com. That's Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, NeuroPointDX.com. For Tech Nation and for Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.